Hello, friends, and welcome to the Midpacker Pod, part of the Free Trail Network of Podcasts. I am your host, Troy Meadows, and I am stoked to bring you informative and relatable content from people just like you, everyday runners pushing their boundaries and doing extraordinary things on and off the trails. The stoke is high on this episode as I am talking with Tim Locke. And we focus a lot of the conversation on sustainability and practical ways to minimize your carbon footprint. Tim is an architect and partner at a firm called Opal, where their focus is on sustainable building design. Needless to say, Tim is a subject matter expert in sustainability, and we go deep on this topic. Tim is also a husband, father, and trail runner who loves the ultra side of the sport. We touch on Tim's background growing up in Maine, what got him into running, and how he balances the demands of a very busy work life with showing up for his family and getting in some training. Toward the end of the episode, we dive into a a few questions that I had for Tim about what we as trail and ultra runners should be thinking about with regards to our actions and how they impact the planet. I am very passionate about sustainability topics and very much enjoy this conversation. If you would like to see Tim on the show on some sort of reoccurring basis for deeper discussions on sustainability and how we as a community can take action to preserve the natural places we hold near and dear, let me know. Send me a DM on the Midpacker Pod IG account, or if you're a member of Free Trail, leave a comment in the Midpacker Pod Slack channel. Before we get to today's show, this is the part where I ask for a few favors. As of this recording, there are 25 five-star ratings and five reviews on Apple Podcast and 16 five-star rankings on Spotify. Thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who has taken the time to give the pod a little shine. I would love to see these numbers quadruple, and I know you, the audience, can do it. So if you have not already done so, stop what you are doing right now. Go leave the pod a rating and review. It would be a huge, huge, huge help. Also, the podcast now has a Patreon account. I do all the things here from recording, editing, guest outreach, all the things. So if you want to support the pod directly, it's just a buck. You can find a link in the show notes. Okay, thank you for bearing with me on all my calls to actions. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, hello, friends, and welcome back to the Midpacker Podcast. I am here with a buddy of mine, uh, Mr. Timothy Locke. Timmy, how you doing, brother? Is it okay if I call you Timmy? Um, there's only been two people that have been allowed to call me Timmy in my <laughs> life, so I'm not say no. It's my high school soccer coach and um, my parents. So. <laughs> Okay. Well, I, Timothy is fine. Yeah. I understand how I did not make that list and I apologize in advance, but, uh, Tim, man, how you doing today, brother? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Troy. It's exciting to be here. So if for the audience, they may not know, they may not be able to tell if they're watching on YouTube, but, uh, Mr. Tim is calling me from a conference that he's the keynote speaker on. And he happened to schedule this with a two hour buffer between talking with me and giving a keynote at like some pretty prestigious conference in the work that he does. And I just want to put that out there into the world and say, I feel honored that Tim would uh, be able to fit me into, to his super busy, um, you know, keynote conference speaking schedule. So yeah, I, I feel, I feel blessed brother. Thank you. 
No problem. I'm super excited to do it. And uh, maybe even more excited than the keynote because I've given <laughs> keynotes before, but I haven't been on your podcast before. So Awesome. Yeah. Well, I know we talked about it too, that it's kind of like the perfect time frame where you can unload and, and talk about something besides what you have to give the keynote on and get kind of get your mind <laughs> exactly. off the fact that you have to get up in front of a room full of people and, and, and do a presentation, <laughs> which is never fun. I don't care how good you are at it. So, um, <laughs> All right, cool. So enough of uh, the the beginning bantering out of the way. You know, the opening question I usually give most of my guests, especially first time guests, you know, Tim, you know, who is Timothy Locke? Yeah, so it's a, always a hard question. Ask an it's existential loaded. question, get an existential answer, right? So yeah. um, I, uh, you know, I think I'd most closely identify as a... Um, avid ecologist, um, across all the things that I do, all my endeavors. So whether that's work, whether that's, um, life or whether that's, you know, our outdoor pursuits, like trail running, like we're going to talk about a little bit here today. Um, and it's just something that's been a through line across my entire life. And I try to take that engagement to all of those activities. Um, I'm also a dad, 13 year old daughter. Um, so I'm an architect by trade, um, sustainability expert within the world of architecture, but expanding into other um, other disciplines as well. And we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, and then, yeah, I'm, I just have a love for the outdoors and the trails. I always have. Um, you know, I grew up just about 40 minutes from Acadia National Park in Maine, and um, I think I'd hiked every mountain in that park by the time I was 10 or 12 with my parents and that love just kind of continued into, um, exploring the mountains in my early twenties and the Rockies, uh, through mountaineering and climbing. And then more recently as you know, life kind of continues and you have less time and maybe less time to travel to, uh, crazy places that has kind of, that void's been filled with trail running and you know, that's a great way. I've always found it to be a great way to kind of like meet those same ecological recognition needs that I have in my profession, um, with my activities. Um, yeah. Awesome, Tim. And, uh, you know, I think there's a, that's a through line you and I share. I mean, obviously you're, you're coming at sustainability from a really big picture higher art. I mean, big picture, small people, but like picture, but your vocation is really wrapped around it. I think I'm like super passionate ecologist as well, like really passionate about sustainability and what I can do as an individual, um, you know, to affect my carbon footprint. And then also like I've, I've done my best to try to like incept sustainability goals and a sustainability mindset in, into the organizations that, uh, the organization that I've helped to build. Uh, and it's not an easy job. And, and honestly, it's like, uh, I'd like to say, I'm sure you agree with me. I'd like to say it's like a journey, not a destination. And there's just so much to learn when it comes to, you know, how do you look at your carbon footprint and, and how do you adjust your actions accordingly? Right. And we're definitely going to dive into some of that stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, getting in, you mentioned, you know, early, like your parents kind of taught you a love, a love of the outdoors. And, um, you know, I think there's something that I think we, another thing we share is that like, I used to love backpacking. 
I don't have time for backpacking <laughs> anymore. And so that's kind of yes. where, you know, I like running and I like doing something daily. And that's kind of where like the running and the, the ultra running and that intersection of like, I need nature time, you know, I need that reflective in nature time. And that's kind of where, you know, trail running came to be in my life. It sounds like a, it, it came, it came into your life in kind of a, a similar vein, right? Like life gets in the way yeah. of spending all of your time in the outdoors, if that's something that, that you're trying to do. So, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. um, You know, it's, it's interesting. I was, you know, blessed to have two parents that thought that was really important. You know, they, um, they purchased land in Maine with a friend of theirs in the mid seventies for quantities of money that we would think of as laughable at this time and built their houses with their own hands, which probably, taught me what not to do in my profession, but, um, they, um, we actually moved into our house, um, from Westchester County, New York. Um, and the windows hadn't arrived yet. And we were literally, I was three and a half and we were camping in a tent inside a house. And, you know, I have to think that some of that kind of like made an impression on me going forward, not just for connection to the outdoors, but also like, how we mitigate that connection. And, um, you know, we were in rural Maine and hiking all over the place and they'd take us back, back into the white mountains because of the closest place where you could do, you know, an extended kind of backpacking trip. And I'm talking like 12 years old or so, um, at that time, I remember, you know, being up on, um, a part of the Northern part of the presidential range, uh, Mount Adams and, hiking up ahead with my parents and I have a younger sister and brother and they were kind of a little slower um, cause they were little and uh, saw this like guy come crest over the summit in these like tiny split shorts. And, you know, probably like at that point, like, you know, old school new balances or something. And um, I was like, what is that? <laughs> That's amazing. And, you know, later in life after, you know, the time to kind of, do more, um, I don't know, extreme adventures, say in the West or in the Rockies had passed and I had a child and less time and less proclivity to do things that were more dangerous. Um, sure. I kind of remembered that moment like really, really well. And so it wasn't that long ago, we're talking five or six years ago that, um, I was talking to my wife about like, what could I do to get that connection back? You know, it resettled back to Maine after 10 years, of working in New York, uh, city. And, um, like, I think I might try to do the Prezi traverse. Um, she didn't know what that was. My wife's not, not an outdoors enthusiast. And she's like, oh, definitely you should try it. And I, a friend of mine and I did that with like no training. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I had not connected with the trail running community at all. At that point, I just knew it was possible cause I'd seen it, you know, 30 years prior. And, um, I'd looked up online, like, you know, what typical times were, you know, and I was like, okay, I think I could probably do that. And, um, we just went and let her rip and we did it, you know, we did it within the amount of time that we thought we could. And it just, I got the bug, man. It was like, I had to do more. (laughs) And then I started actually kind of looking up if I wanted to run, what should I do every week? (laughs) Just kind of spiraled from there. Um, I never, you know, my life's fairly busy, so I don't 
ever really have the time to kind of like dedicate to more than maybe one or two races a year, but I try to still keep up the training as though I would be racing more because for me, it's more about recreating that consistent connection Mm. and the physical fitness than it is about the racing. Although I absolutely love the community and wish I could be, um, with you all more often, but, um, it's really just about maintaining that connection that kind of traces all the way back to that kind of like middle school moment up on those mountains. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And for anyone that doesn't know, I mean, I'll link to the, I'll link to the, to the Prezi in, in the show notes, but it is, man is one of those like relentless, uber technical, just ridiculously slabby, yes. <laughs> lots of rock, lots of like, uh, like, jump ups and jump downs um i remember having a friend that did it and sent me pictures and he's just like wtf is this i don't even know what i got myself into like he grew up yeah. there but he's lives in in he was living in california at the time so you know yeah. anyone that lives in california runs california trails just like there's nothing like even if you're no. used to even if you've experienced <laughs> it as a child or whatever like you just are not used to like what you're going to experience on the tread on the Prezi traverse. And so it's really interesting that like you got bit by the bug doing something that's like, you know, considered one of the quintessential beast coast lines. And it is like all things beast coast, you know, rocks, roots, water slab, like just the most, yeah, gnarly technical, uh, trail running. Um, you know, and kind of worked yourself backwards out of that, which is actually really, really yeah. cool. And I definitely resonate with the, like, being prepared to run an ultra, you know, making sure that you're doing mm-hmm. the training so that you can just like, it doesn't take a lot to show up when you decide you want to do something right. or, you know, like, I think we have a lot of similarities there too. Um, like I only did two races this year, but I knew which two races they were going to be. There were two really long, hard races, but like I for sure was going to make sure that I was ready in the middle of the summer. If I wanted to jump into a 50 K that I could just show up and do it. Exactly. You know? And I think, yeah, there's something to be said about the consistency and the training too. And, you know, I don't get to run on the trails every day. Um, but just the act of running reminds me of that connection too. Like you don't necessarily, even if you have to run on the road, um, you know, you know what you're, you know, you're kind of in the middle of doing, of, of aligning with that goal. And that goal may just be like, I like to tell people like training for life. So you're like yes. just training to be able to be fit and do and pursue the things you want to do when you have the time to do it. And, um, you know, we're not 20 years old anymore, Tim, you know, so you can't just throw yourself into the, pre- into something like the Prezi loop. You kind of have to, or the Prezi traverse, excuse me, you have to, you got to have, ha- have the fitness to do it, you know? So, um, that's, that's yeah. really cool. Let's, <laughs> I, w- I want to jump into, you know, at some point I want to jump into, um, your vocation, you're doing some amazing things. Um, and then, but, and also like how you balance that with your family needs, but like, let's just go ahead and continue on this line of, of some of the stuff you've done in, in, in trail running. I know, you know, you mentioned the Prezi, sure. uh, Prezi Traverse, um, would love to talk about your first ultra distance race. Um, yeah. and then, uh, you know, any, any highlights you want to add there? Sure. So kind of right after I'd finished doing the Prezi that first time, I, um, I had a client, it's, um, collegiate client that I was working with and the president of the college, um, mentioned to me that he'd signed up for an ultra trail ultra. And I was like, Whoa, like I just did this thing. It was really fun. Um, I, I think I'd like to sign up for that. And so, um, he'd suggested that I sign up for mountain lakes 100, which is the one that he'd done first, the first ultra he'd ever done. And, um, I 
I did it because I didn't know any different. I was just told to do it by somebody I trusted up here. And, um, I got selected in the lottery, like my first try, which was, has not, has, has not maintained that, that rate of success <laughs> in lotteries at all. But, um, you know, I thought, Oh yeah, I'll get selected in all the lotteries right now. So I got into it, but then immediately after getting in, um, COVID hit and that race was canceled in 2020. So I kind of took it upon myself to like say, okay, well, I'm going to take the year to try to, um, maybe prepare myself a little better, um, for these things. So it isn't quite so, um, uh, I don't know, slapdash or last minute or, um, unprepared. And, um, I did a couple distances that were shorter just during the pandemic on my own. So did a 50 K on my own, planned the route, you know, local route, ran it on my own, um, crewed out of my car. Um, and then did the same thing with a, a 50 mile distance later that year. And then, um, you know, chose to really try to kind of make that first experience the best I could by, um, got hooked up with a coach turned, uh, into 2021. Um, and, uh, yeah, my first ever, um, all, organized ultra marathon was a hundred miler, which is, is rare, I think. Sure. Um, and it went really, really well. I, um, happened to do it on a day that literally poured, uh, and it was 43 degrees for 24 hours. Um, but was able to finish it sub 24 and, um, felt really good about it. And that kind of just spurred me to kind of just continue to try and to select races and cool spots that would give me the experience to try to, um, see new places on foot. Not necessarily my goals aren't necessarily the kind of like big dream races. I'd love to do some of them at some point, but it's more about if I have to select one or two races a year, a year because of my schedule, I want to be as prepared as I can. And I want to um, make sure it's a new experience, that it's something I haven't seen before, area of the country or world I haven't seen before, so that it's um, something that I can make the most of. Even if the race doesn't go well, it's still an opportunity to kind of have that engagement with a new place. Um, that's kind of what I told my my coach when I first um, started working with her. And it's uh, Sasha Tenanti. I'll shout out her because it's been instrumental for um, me being prepared because I just don't have the time to do this on my own. And um, I think it's really important that we always are looking to experts to try to make sure that we can be the best in whatever we're doing. Um, that's of course what I try to tell my clients. And so that was an important step for me to kind of like relinquish the control over something that I didn't know much about to somebody who did. And one of the things I said first was like, I have this, these certain places that I want to see. And it's really just about how can we do that with this hobby, <laughs> like with this lifestyle. And it's a little bit different. And sometimes that means a race, but sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean finishing a race. Um, not mm. always. Um, and I don't know. It's, I guess I feel like at this point in my life, I think we're the same age. I'm 43. Um, that it's, I want to see that kind of through line across all that, uh, all the activities and endeavors I do. And that's a higher priority than, I don't know exactly what happens at the finish line or anything like that. Still sad, always sad <laughs> because emotions are definitely competing. But, um, yeah, I, 
I kind of try to pick and choose based on that and, and always try to make it something new. Are you looking to represent your love of the trails off the trails? Then check out Run Trail Life, the casual apparel company that lets you show your love of trail and ultra running while giving back to protect the trails we love so much. RTLTs are 100% organic cotton or made from recycled water bottles, and $1 from every item purchased is donated to Runners for Public Lands, a not-for-profit dedicated to creating and maintaining trails on our public lands. I am super passionate about this company because I am the founder and solo entrepreneur behind it. That's right, from the website to the apparel designs, I created it all. So if you love the content on the pod, consider supporting me directly with a purchase. And if you use code MIDPACKERPOD, I will double the donation from your purchase to Runners for Public Lands. I personally love the Ultra Runners Do It Longer tee and the RTL Logo Trucker, which has a sweet built-in headband making it perfect for your next long run. Visit runtraillife.com to check out our entire line of hats and tees. Thanks for your support. Yeah, man. Very cool. And I, I love your point about, um, you know, you, you can select these places that you want to visit and explore, but uh, you know, even if you're in a race, you don't necessarily, uh, have to finish. And I think, you know, in this, uh, you know, I think we're trying to like dispel the culture of like, what is it? Die before DNF or whatever, whatever the, the, the catchphrase is. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, something we were talking on office hours with free trail and it was during cascade crest. Right. And we mm -hmm. had a conversation and, and you ended up DNFing, um, you ended up pulling the plug at cascade crest, but like when we had that con when we were talking about it, like, man, you had a really compelling why for, for just kind of like deciding that you were okay with not finishing. And I would love for you to kind of unpack that race sure. and then also <laughs> unpack that why. And I was like, it was really compelling for me. Cause I remember like I was kind of leading into that within the office hours and we were talking about it. And then you said, you know, you said what you said. And I was just like, Oh man, like Timothy, T Timmy, Timothy, excuse me, really, <laughs> really, really gets it. No, like I was just like, wow, man, like that is really, really powerful. And I would love for you to share that story with the audience. Yeah. So yeah, it was, a uh... okay. So the, the, the overall theme of this, the story for parents is that I would not recommend planning a family vacation around a hundred mile race. <laughs> That's going to be the end takeaway. <laughs> but, um, you know, two years ago I ran Gorge Waterfalls hundred K and I went with my family, you know, my daughter who at that point was 11 and my wife, um, they crewed me, went great hundred K. What I failed to realize is that when you take a race that can be done in a day and expand it to something that takes at least 24 hours or longer for us that are yeah. in the mid pack, you know, um, that dynamic changes a lot. And we put it at the end of the vacation. We had this amazing vacation where we'd, um, you know, rented a, uh, a sweet camper van in Seattle and toured all of Olympic Peninsula and we'd never been there before. Um, and then went to the Cascades and I was going to run Cascade Crest at the end. And I've been applying to that race for two years and I'd finally gotten in and, um, it's feeling really good. And the race kind of didn't go great in the middle, um, because of some cramping. And essentially I started, I started losing time on the schedule that I'd set. And what I started realizing 
as I was overcoming the cramping, which I was able to do. And I was happy about that. And that was a big, good positive takeaway, even from a DNF that the first time I'd been able to kind of successfully course correct cramping mid race, um, is that I, um, had based all of the end of our vacation around finishing in a certain amount of time and realized during the kind of, let's say miles 30 to 50, I ended up dropping at the turnaround point. It was a out and back this year. It's usually a loop. And those last 20 miles, when all of a sudden I'd course corrected the cramping and things were going great again, I was, you know, moving past a lot of people that had passed me earlier, feeling really good definitely feeling like, okay, this is back to where I knew that this is a thing I could finish, but kept looking at my watch and I'm like, okay, now I'm going all the way into the second half of tomorrow. If I continue at this pace. And that means essentially the last three days of this family trip that we'd planned the one chance in the year that we get to kind of get out of our region and go someplace cool that we've never seen is going to kind of be gone. Like it's going to be about them taking care of me laying around in a van. And, you know, my daughter's 13 years old and every year it's my wife and I plan, you know, our one big trip a year together. And we're like, is this the last time she's going to be enthusiastic to do this? And mm. all I could think in those last 20 miles of the race that I ran were another 51 miles after that um, was I want that time more than I want to run back this course in the middle of the night. And mm. I'd gotten to see the entire course in daylight, stunning course, loved the race, amazingly organized race. Um, you know, I'll probably sign up again at some point because it was so, so fun. But like that belt buckle wasn't as important as that day and a half with my daughter and my wife. And like, I was really torn at, it was a turnaround point it was about 10 PM and they'd pick me up and they came there and they were excited and they were like, okay, you ready, you ready to go back? And it's like, I kind of think I don't want to. And they're like, you sure? Like, it's like, it's okay. You can. And I was like, no, I, I want to hang out with you guys. And I went and told the yeah. captain of the aid station cause I had to drop I don't know. I don't know this person's name, but he's like, I told him everything. I just told you, you know, compressed paraphrased. Sure. He's like, looked at me for about five seconds. And he's like, I don't think I've ever heard somebody say that before. He's like, <laughs> good, good on you. Good on you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then the next day, you know, we just went and hung out in a lake in the mountains. And I was like, kind of glad. And it's not a value assessment. I was just my personal preference at the time and trying to just be true to that and not, you know, take the pressure of the DNF ahead of that. Like it, it just felt like me being honest with myself and I didn't think I would ever drop because of that. Like I would never have gone into the race with a mindset that that would be a reason that I would drop out. And it kind of really changed my mind a little bit about like why, you know, especially us in the middle of the pack, like, why do we do this exactly? Like what's, what's the point? Like, what are we trying to do? And Everybody has different reasons, yep. but trying to just be authentic to that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just, you know, well said, you know, well said. And, and ultimately, um, you know, you just had to make a choice and your choice was like, you know, in, at this point in this situation, in this circumstance, like I'm going to choose my family. Cause right now that feels more important than, you know, doing this real, I mean, 
let's just get let's not let's just be real brutally honest here like ultra marathon running if you're the runner <laughs> it's about as selfish as an endeavor as, yes. as, as you can do <laughs> and like it's amazing because we i love doing hard things obviously you love doing hard things i think the audience like really enjoys doing hard things or they wouldn't be tuning in and listening to uh you know to to the banterings of other people that like do hard, hard like to <laughs> right. do hard things but at the same time like you know it just sometimes it's it's enough you know and like i think that's it's amazing that you're able to say you know i ran i what was it, like 50 some odd miles of the course 51 miles yeah, yeah so 51 <laughs> miles of, of the course and like i'm okay yeah. with that and i think mm-hmm. um there's something very powerful powerful about that especially because i know like in my own personal experience like my my family has to make sacrifices during my training. If I'm training for a hundred miler, like yeah. there are sacrifices that my family has to make during that block, and to be able to maybe give that back, especially in the circumstance you're in, where it's like you you're on the vacation with the family. I mean, I will say another lesson learned there, Tim, is you know don't don't plan your next hundred miler around a vacation because then you know you, you definitely exactly. don't want you don't want that why like <laughs> like um, not to make this about well, we made, not to. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it makes sense when you're planning it, you know, you're like on paper, you're like, Oh, this is perfect. And then, like you said, like, you realize you're like, I'm going to be completely destroyed. Like, I don't know about you, but unless I spend like at Hellbender this year, I spent like most of the time hiking, right? So it was a 37 hour finish. My brain was frazzled for like a week, but my body, my body felt amazing. Like I was doing like deep squats, holding my son, sending videos to the people we were sharing an Airbnb with. Like I did like three or four in a row holding my son and and they were all just like sending me like, you know, puke emojis because they're just like all laid up, like just spent in, in the Airbnb. And, you know, for the most part, like, I'm done for like three, there's like two days after where it's like sitting down sucks. Like I don't even want to drive mm-hmm. a car, like all these things. And so like you said, you're like, you're almost like, so what? your family's going to drive you to a high Alpine Lake and prop you up in the bed in the back of the <laughs> van while you like sit there and watch them do fun things, you know, like that yeah. just doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally yeah. get the rationale there. And also, like I said, you know, I think knowing you're like, I don't know how many more experiences I'm going to have like this with my daughter where she's not just going to be like glued to the phone or trying to text message her boyfriend or like all the, I mean, like you could list a myriad of things of like, you know, when they hit the teenage years, man, they like want less and less to do with their parents and more to more to do with themselves. And like, I guess, you know, being a teenager is like running an ultra marathon for them because they become inherently selfish individuals about, (laughs) about it. So um, but yeah, man, in general, I think that's an amazing story to tell. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a very, very strong and compelling message. Um, and like I said, man, kudos on you for being able to like make that decision for your family and ultimately have no regrets about it. I think that's, uh, it's really powerful and, and, and it's, it's great. And it's, it's interesting too, because it's like, I, I remember having a conversation with my coach after that, and, you know, we weren't in contact during that cause we didn't have service and then talking to her and explaining that whole thing. And saying, and, you know, one of the things she said to me is like, well, maybe, you know, hundred milers aren't the right fit right now at this time. And I was like, I kind of think it's the opposite. It's about the timing. It's like, if it wasn't this hard. I wouldn't have had that emotional re- realization. Like it wouldn't have happened Yeah. because I would have been like, I'm just going to push through this. Cause it's not, it's only this much more time and I'm going to finish it. And I never would have had that epiphany. I'm really glad it happened. Um, and I want more of that. I want more of those types of experiences, but thinking about 
how that sacrifice starts changing as our kids age. Cause it, mm. it, it's always still a sacrifice, but the sacrifices kind of morph into different sacrifices. Um, when it was, she was really young, it was about, you know, supporting my wife, like making sure there's enough time sure. for both of us, as you know, with a, with a small child. And then it becomes the other thing, which you just described. It's like sacrifices that we're making, uh, for time with our daughter, that's, that's getting shorter and shorter. And just an advice to, I mean, we have a lot of people in our community that have young kids and there's somebody that has a less young kid. It's just like, this is, these things change and they get better in certain ways yeah. and harder in others. And we have to yeah. always be kind of like managing that against our, our own needs. Yeah. I think it's a good, I'm going to pivot to like, I want to pivot to the, to the family balance and then we'll like move that into, yeah. you know, what you're doing with Opal and, and the sustainability, sustainability, sustainability practice that you have wrapped around your architectural firm. <laughs> but like, you know, I think it's, it's interesting. Like you always have to figure out how to show up, you know? And I think as an ultra runner, you know, that usually means, um, you got to get up really early to do your training. That's how, <laughs> that's how, that's how it is for me during yep. the week. Like it's like five o'clock, five, five o'clock wake ups. So I can go run for two hours and be home before breakfast. Right. And maybe the kids, up, hopefully yep. I get, hopefully I walk in the door before the kid wakes up and that's always a blessing. And if I don't, hopefully the wife's only had to spend 20 minutes dealing with the kids so I can take over. And, you know, and then I think I had, and I'm going to just repeat this because I had this, th this got brought up to me by two different individuals um, over the last three weeks of recording. They all, and like you and I may not have the ability to do this depending on how, you know, and, and the audience either depending on how much control you have over your schedule. But like they all said, the, both these individuals said, I do my long runs on Friday I do a my back to back is on Saturday, but I get up really early and then I have all of Saturday and the Saturday run isn't as long as, as the Friday run. And then I have all of Saturday mm -hmm. and all of Sunday devoted to my family. Cause I take Sunday as my rest day. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's like light bulb moment here where I'm like, Oh, how do you, how do you make sure you balance all the things? Cause I will say when I'm in the middle of like a huge training block, man, like it sucks to be married to me, man. It's like Saturday and Sunday. I'm spending my entire day. I'm like seven hours on the trail Saturday and six hours on the trail Sunday. And my wife's just like, Hey bro, like what's going on? You know? And I'm like, yeah, well, but like I told you I'm running this hundred miler. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. hundred miler, you know? So I just thought that that was like really poignant advice. You know, if you have the ability to kind of say, uh, like rearrange your work schedule so you can free up Fridays for the long runs. And then basically just, you know, mm -hmm. I'm like a standard, like Monday's my day off train during the week, Tuesday through Friday, you know, big days on Saturday and Sunday. And I'm like, definitely you know, like moving forward when I start my new training, when I start a new training block, I'm going to see if I can't implement that. Cause I think it's really good stuff, but you know, you mentioned the family and we already kind of touched on this, but you know, through the years, um, you know, you've grown and built a business and then you've also yeah. had to balance like raising, uh, raising your daughter and then ultimately, you know, managing some of these, you know, managing those needs with like your running pursuits and like, what, is there anything, do you, I'd like for you to talk on that a little bit, but also, is there anything like really tactical that you've learned over the years that you try to apply to that? Cause I mean, obviously you're a busy guy, man. Like you were either, <laughs> I can't, I don't know if you're the partner, a partner or the founder of the business that you run. Plus like you're sitting here. And like I said before, like you're literally sitting in a room that they gave you to have this recording in because you're doing a <laughs> keynote, you do your keynote speaker at a huge conference in Denver. So obviously like you have to travel, you have to balance all those things. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, talk to that a little bit and, and, and how do yeah. you make, make sure you're showing up for your family on a regular basis? 
Yeah. Well, you, 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 you chose the word that I was going to use, you know, there's, you know, this will be something we'll talk about later. And this is this sustainability discussion too, but there's strategies and there's tactics. And I think that people have a tendency to mistake tactics for strategies. Um, Mm. I think everybody, especially us ultra runners, trail runners in general, but more specifically people that are doing long distances have these like grand strategies for preparing for a race, right? Whether it's a training plan or coaches giving us a training plan, whatever it is, like we're we're following some like master, master concept. It's going to get us that start line in a certain condition, right? I think what you learn once you have add these other variables, these outside pressures is that the strategy is only as good as the flexibility of the tactics that undergird it. Right. So like, I think Mm. that that's the perfect way to describe it. Like it's, you know, this, you're, um, you know, uh, the person that suggested the Friday, Friday long run, that's a great tactic. Right. You know, for me, it's about like understanding that in my life, there's these certain things that I need to do on Saturdays specifically that absolutely suck and take a lot of my time and I don't like doing them. So it means that for my Saturday long run, I'm getting up at four and like, I'm going to make that sacrifice to tactically position that long run at the right time. Yeah. Um, as a business owner, like I don't have the ability to do things like move that to the middle of the week because most of my schedule is created by the needs of my clients um, yeah. or outside organizations that might say, ask me to come speak or something like that. And so I don't have the flexibility to say, even though I'm making my schedule to say, well, I could do a long run on say Wednesday or Friday or something like that. I'd love that. My tactical thing is about those, like t- those hours and times. And this is like, people ask like, you know, architect, uh, ultra runner, like what's, is there any connection? And I was like, well, the big connection is that architecture school, you do not sleep. Like you do crazy all-nighters all the time. And um, that's probably the biggest benefit that I've been able to take into ultra running is that, you know, I can do like four or five hours of sleep and it's totally fine, which means that I can get up early and I can run if I need to during the week or if I'm traveling, I always make sure that even if I'm tired, even if it's like, kind of a slog like this week I've been in three different cities across the upper great plains and mountain, uh, West and always just trying to make sure I get that run in anyway. Cause it makes me feel good. Even if sure. it's in some random suburban area of Bismarck where I ran on Tuesday, <laughs> um, or, um, you know, yesterday was able to kind of take the afternoon and run up to Boulder and run with some people in Boulder. That was great. It's like always trying to find and fit it in tactically as much as I can. And sometimes it's even like I'm at a job site and I know there's some trails and I just Mm -hmm. bring a change of clothes and I'm like, I'm going to jump on those trails right after this meeting. I'm going to take that hour, get a run in, calm me down, get back to it. And it's gotten easier as, you know, my daughter's gotten older. That certainly makes it simpler um, because you know, the amount of care time of care is much lower. Um, but that's also kind of tracked with the business taking off. So what's been replaced by one thing has kind of been filled in by another. Um, I did want to just mention like, yeah, um, I am part owner. We have two, two other partners. Um, one of my partners is the founding partner. So I just want to make sure that's clear as we get into the conversation about, um, professional, but like, you know, we did have to grow that together. So none of us are specifically 
responsible for that growth on their own, even though the founding partner has been there the longest. And so that's a huge amount of time too. It's just like getting new work, um, getting yourself out there, making sure you're networking appropriately. And it, it's, it can be really tiring. And I've found that, you know, sacrificing things like sleep works for me, but it's a tactic that won't work for everybody. Um, and that, uh, you know, I just try to make sure that that kind of like biophilic, uh, kind of, um, well is always refilled by getting outside sometime during that day, (laughs) wherever it is. Yeah, Yeah. no. And, and I think, you know, you make it like, for me, like I can't, when we started the company that I currently, uh, that I founded, like I could sacrifice sleep and now like, I can't do it. Like I just got to a point where, um, however you want to say, like I've just dipped into the well too many times, uh, on that tip. And, and I can't just consistently do it and good on, good on you for being able to do that. I think I know like, uh, Mike Wardian's like the same way the guy can like function on five, six hours of sleep constantly and just get up and, and grind. And I'm definitely on that like seven, um, seven ish. Like I need, I need seven hours of sleep or else, you know, all work and, and no play mix, mix Troya. Yeah. <laughs> Makes Troy a dull boy. That being said, I mean, I can still do, you know, the, I'm only going to get five hours tonight. And I'm okay with that, but I can't, if I did that like three days in a row, like I would just be, I would be garbage. And I love, um, you know, your point on just like having the go bag and being ready. And that was something that I had to do when I lived in, when I lived outside of San Francisco and I would do a lot of engagements in the city with clients, mm-hmm. like driving outside of the city at, you know, things would end at, you know, four o'clock. And I'm just like, there's no reason for me to leave San Francisco right now. Cause like if I can go run for an hour and a half and get back to my car and leave here at like six, six thirty, and I'll get, to, I'll get home around the exact same time as if I tried to leave at, at four thirty, five o'clock. And I think that was something that I, I did quite a bit is just like, just be ready and have a bag where like, when am I fitting it in my run whenever the window opens? And as soon as the window opens, like I am jumping feet first into it, getting it done and then getting back into the, you know, back into the swing of things. I think that's, that's like a, you know, that's a huge tactical piece there. Uh, and I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so I think, you know, I want to talk about the, the business and the work that you do at Opal. And I want to use that as like an umbrella for the conversation that we're going to have. Cause, um, you know, I'm scratching my own itch here, Tim, by having you on because like you are a thought leader in sustainability and I really wanted to be able to bring value to the audience, but also value to myself when I'm thinking about, um, my carbon footprint as an ultra runner. And so we have a couple topics we're going to talk about, but I really wanted to just kind of start with, um, you know, you're an architect, but where did, I mean, obviously, and you, you mentioned in the beginning, like your through line has always kind of been, you know, nature, ecology, sustainability. So, um, you know, talk about how you came into, uh, the business with Opal and then like what the, what the business's strengths are, what you focus and specialize in. And then, um, yeah, kind of go from there. Yeah. So I think, um, where I started connecting the dots between the two things and I, you know, wanted to pursue architecture since late middle school and high school. And I, I tell everybody, I just, got lucky on that, you know, um, not often, I don't think do people kind of like find the thing that they really love doing Mm -hmm. 
that early. And I didn't even really know what it was <laughs> at that time, um, what I was getting myself into. Um, and then, you know, it was the kind of, kind of discipline that, you know, like a high school guidance counselor will tell a kid to pursue if they are good at both say science, math and art. And they'll say, Oh, well, that's the confluence of these mm. things. But in reality, like, architectural practice is much more closely aligned with fine art than it is with science and math. Um, but in college, I had this kind of still had this kind of like keen interest specifically in physical anthropology and sociology and understanding the way, you know, we exist on the planet and kind of squaring that with, you know, our physical ecology. And, um, as I started to practice after college, I started kind of connecting those dots closer and closer together that, um, you know, these, what we would call in our profession, but it's kind of just a general term, like the built environment that we exist in is kind of the thing that makes us able to live on the planet in most, most parts of the planet. Like our species proliferates because it's able to create shelters for itself. Right. And those shelters are designed by, people within my discipline. And so essentially what we're doing is creating like an econo ecological connection with the outside world. And I started kind of thinking about it more in those terms, um, in the middle of the first 10 years of practice where I was working in New York city for really, really wealthy, like, um, clients in a completely urban environment. Like it couldn't be more divorced from mm, that kind yeah. of gradient between, between, um, you know, a, a non-human ecology and a human ecology. And it started like not sitting great to me that like these things weren't connected in a way that was representative in the work. And so, um, you know, I had this colleague, um, that I'd worked with at a firm before that had started this practice in Maine specifically braced around this idea of passive house and passive house is a design standard that started in Germany. And it was about, Essentially, I'm going to boil it down very simply that buildings could run with far, far less energy than they're, they are currently being designed to consume. It was a theory. It was an engineer and a group of engineers that started it. Um, but it started kind of gaining traction. And this guy that was, um, you know, my colleague and that is now my business partner was trying to, trying to take a crack at it in Maine, really far northern climate where buildings need a lot of heat, you know, to, sure. to function. And that was creating kind of economic problems, honestly, for people trying to just afford to run their homes. So it had mm -hmm. a, there's a market there for it. Um, and you didn't need to even talk about it in sustainability terms necessarily at first. So I was like, we're thinking of moving this, leaving the city anyway. Our daughter was getting close to preschool age and didn't really want to deal with school in the city. And so I was like, what do you think about me coming up and joining you in Maine? And it's obviously where I grew up. So it was easy for me. Um, my wife had seen it a lot because my parents still live there. So we just made the leap, kind of a leap of faith that like this idea that at that point was very marginal and niche could have traction. And since then the adoption curve of that way of designing buildings has kind of really ratcheted up to the point where, you know, the, the first project in our practice that got certified in that criteria was only the 12th in the U S and now there's tens of thousands of these buildings across the country. And that's it, just in a kind of 12 year span. So I was going to say, Tim, and, and just to paint the picture. So you're talking, this is 
12 years ago is when you guys put out your first yeah. project and when you, and when you made when the, finished move the first one, yeah, yeah. And you made the move up to, up to main ish. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, no, that's really cool. And I love like, you're like, well, in Maine, all we have to do is tell them we're going to save you money on your heating. And people are like, oh, I'll listen because <laughs> right. that's, I mean, any, anyone that has to turn, anyone that lives in a winter, in a real winter, like the difference between your summer AC bill and your winter heating bill, it's a, you know, it's, it's yeah, not, there's a huge difference. They're not comparable. <laughs> yeah, no, 100%. And I think we forget too that like, it's very easy, especially we think about the community that we're talking to today, right? Like it's, we all love the outdoors. We love the natural world. We love it. Right. And I think we forget that our, our relationship to that is mitigated by these things that we build. It is, it just is It's the reality. Like we can't, yeah, sure. we couldn't live in most of those parts without it. And because of that, you know, they're also our single biggest contributor across any part of the economy to carbon emissions. And I think that that's like a a story that's known certainly by policymakers and certainly by people in our trade and our discipline. Um, But it's not known that well by the public. And it's unfortunate because I think people don't realize like how much power they have in that space, right? Physical space, Mm -hmm. like it's a real space, but also like you have control over some of those things, choices that you make. And like, you may not, like some people don't, but, um, I think we can get very easily distracted by the things that are more, um, you know, more consumer based and aren't thought of as, um, yeah, you know, are, are thought of as something that, that I could kind of like buy or not buy versus, um, thinking about these much, much larger contributors to, um, to climate change. Yeah. And I, I you're going to, you may have to correct my fact check me here, but it's something like, is it, it's something like 70% of carbon is emitted by like what 50 companies or something like that is that yeah it's i mean yes it's something like that i we tend to break it down by outputs right like sectors of the economy not individual businesses so like it's a much better way to look at it honestly no i was gonna say that's by looking at it from sectors it's a much better way to look at it because then you as an individual can decide can figure out like how you align in those specific sectors as opposed to like trying to figure out what companies provide what service in those sectors yeah right and and i i like to think about it like not even um like somebody might say okay it's, it's an energy production problem. And, and that's true. That is true. That is the biggest, um, say output of emissions. Mm. But what we want to be critical about and think about is like, what is that energy going to? What is the end use of the energy and organize it in that way? Cause those are the things we actually can change as non-government agencies, right? Sure. Like a government could have a plant economy and decide to like change the way we produce electricity. Right that's fine. That's happening. Like there's people working on that, but us as a society have the ability to take, to follow where that end use is going and decide we're going to do something differently in order to make that demand less. Right. So what I say is, okay, take all that energy and see where it's going and say, okay, well, 40% of it is going to buildings. 30% of it is going to transportation something like 10% is manufacturing or something like that. And then just say, what levers do I have within these pies? Right. And so I got really lucky because I care about the climate and I happen to be in the biggest slice of the pie. Big pie. Yeah. (laughs) And, and I think it's a, you make a really like valid point by saying 
reduction is reduction is reduction, right? Like efficiency creates yeah. is reduction. So if we can figure out how to be more efficient with this, you know, whatever massive energy we're talking about, then that means that we're producing less carbon as a species. And so it's like, exactly. and usually what happens is, um, those efficiencies can be made with real, like not small changes, but like it, there's a step, there's a step series of changes that can be made over time to create efficiency as opposed to like, you know, like you're talking about like, oh, let's decarbonize the electrical grid. Sure. So that's a 30, that that's going to be a 30 plus year yeah, project long, to get there. It's, <laughs> it's a long tail, right? And, we're, and obviously people yeah. are working to solve that problem for sure. But then it's like, when you think about, you know, a heat pump is like 50 or 60% more efficient than any other way of heating and cooling a home. So like now that's something right. that every individual <laughs> resident or every individual homeowner can think about when it's time to make a replacement, or if they're in a position to make the replacement, yeah. you can show them like, Hey, over the next 20 years, we're going to save you the cost of this unit anyway, because you're about to save 40% on, on, on your power bill exactly. because of it. And you get to kind of play back the e economics to the end user. And that end user can then say like, oh, you know what? Well, let, let's do it. You know, like th this makes a lot yeah. of sense. And that's that's kind of that positioning between like mark. It's like the, the, the mix between like how you market the efficiency. And I think that's where... Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're just starting to kind of hit the tip of the iceberg when it comes to like putting out some of making sure people understand where the technology really is. Um, but obviously there's yeah, like a I mean, lot, you, you know, cause you're in the, you're in the building. I mean, there's a lot of change that has to happen over time in order for us to get that efficiency down. And I know you're, you, you guys are kind of leading the way. So, um, you know, that's, Wait. that's really cool. Is there anything else you want to talk to talk through uh, with, you know, with regards to the architecture side and, and with what you're doing at Opal? Sure. I think the other big thing to think about there is that one of the things, you know, a lot of my colleagues in the architecture space and just building trade space get thrust into these positions of ecological leadership because mm. we happen to have access to some of the most significant data sets around emissions um, and it's not because somehow like you got this one like wonk architect on your podcast that happens to know a lot about it. We are a niche within the space still, but we get to manage a lot of data because there's thousands and thousands and thousands of little products that go into this complex thing that we call like a building or a house or whatever at the end. And, um, the other thousands of things that go into it are the communities affected. Right. And that's the other part where we have these big data sets is that, we're able to track like, okay, we talk about our individual carbon footprint in, in society, but we know that, you know, when we do something, we can affect X over this broad community. Right. And so that's kind of like a didactic model that I think we often mm. get asked to kind of help people navigate is that the changes that you can make collectively are just so much more vast when you're talking about things like emissions, or even if you get out of the kind of like habitable climate space, uh, you could think about like circular resources and reuse or, sure. um, you know, water protection or uh, site ecology, or even just community health. You know, we just came out of a pandemic and like realized that so many, so much of the air we're breathing when we're trapped inside our homes is not healthy, right? Like yeah. you can make collective decisions that affect thousands of people, hundreds of people at a time, it takes a lot of the burden off the individual onus on the indiv on those individuals. And um, I think that's a really important thing to communicate. And we have the luxury to be able to do that because we have access 
to that data. Um, we had this project um, with uh, a college, that same college president who convinced me to run <laughs> my first ultra marathon, where I was able to take all the admissions contributed that the building was um, deferring by one, saving a huge amount of energy by just putting more insulation in and better windows and things like that, sure. more efficient heating systems. That's like 80% emissions reduction. And then we were using all um, biogenic materials. So wood and um, wood fiber insulation and cellulose to insulate the building and, and, stru and structure the building. And that was able to defer X amount of embodied emissions, right, in the materials. And um, we added it all up. And when we first got to campus, this is a very, very sustainable campus. They kind of very, very high priority for them. And they um, were having this like pretty heated debate about the um, environmental impact of this bus that took kids to and from the nearby town, those that didn't live on campus. And like, how much was it emitting every year? And how are we tracking it? And like, can we really, can we switch to an electric bus or something like that? Can we afford that? We were able to show through those deferred emissions at the end of the design of the project and this presentation that we gave that, yeah, we can give you that in a kilograms of carbon dioxide and we can give you that as a number it might mean something to somebody. But what I can tell you is that you can run this bus now for that same amount of deferred emissions for 355 years. What does that mean? And it was the same relative deferral of emissions. And they were like, Oh my God, they're standing ovation and mainly because they don't have to talk about the night, the night bus anymore. <laughs> right. Like... And and, well, and it, allow, it allows them to say like, okay, this is still an issue, right? But it doesn't need to be the heated yeah. debate at the top of every single meeting that we come to when it comes to exactly. like how we're going to be a more sustainable uh, organization. Exactly. Right. And they can figure out like, it's the pressure. Okay, yeah. Let's like relieve the pressure valve there. And then let's let technology get to a point where all of a sudden it makes sense for us to buy an electric bus. Cause like 100%. that's coming, man. And it's coming really soon. <laughs> like we're there, there are some companies that are doing some amazing things, um, with creating range yeah. and the ability to, to, you know, to, to put, you know, a hundred people on a bus and actually transport them a, a relatively, you know, decent distance. If we're talking like municipality use, not necessarily like cross country use. So, um, yeah. yeah, man. And I think that's also something that a lot of people, it's like, you, they get caught up in this really finite thing, but they forget that, you know, there's like a big picture play. And I think you, you know, you mentioned the data, right? Like all these architects, you guys all have access to the same data sets. The difference is, you know, for the, the people that have created thought leadership in the field through sustainability, like yourself, like you have a passion for figuring out how do we take this data and use it to create the models required to show Hey, here's where the efficiencies can be made. And I think that's, that's a very interesting thing too, because it's one of those situations where you're like, you like got a hold of the data and you're like, Oh, I know exactly what I can do with this. Right. And not, not everyone thought that when, you know, that when they weren't thinking about that, when, when they, not every architect is thinking about that. Some, some yeah. people just have completely different agendas when it comes to like what they're, the structures they're trying to produce. So there was this amazing scientific American article that came out in May that was, um, evaluating um, different strategies that actually influence real change in people's behavior around climate action. And the data itself was actually the least motivating um, criteria to present to someone to get them to change behavior. And the, the, best, the best motivator was social comparison. So 
The one mm. thing that we're also good is like using props and visuals to convince people of things because we have to do that <laughs> for sure. our designs. And yeah. so like to be able to take that data and put it into something that somebody can understand and understand how they relate to it and how they can compare socially to it aligns with that. It was kind of an intuition early on. Um, and it was just the way we're used to working. So that's, it came naturally, but to have that borne out in research, um, when I read that this spring, I was like, oh, aha, like that's makes so much sense to me. Like people, it's hard for people to kind of like grapple with decontextualized numbers that they don't understand. It's really easy for them to see something, understand through the data that's undergirding it, why, and then do it that's easier to model for most people. And yeah. it's another skill set that's kind of unique to design. And it's like, you know, it's squaring science with reality, which is like, I think really important. Like I, I have this thing that I say that like, I really want scientists to act more like designers and designers to act more like scientists more like and come together because like, it's such a critical role. Like we have to like make sure that these abstractions that people can relate to them, like, in their real everyday lives. So, yeah. yeah. And then to be so, able to take it to other, other communities, right. Like, which is like the segue into thinking about, you know, our, our, our shared community. Right. Yeah. On the trail. I, we're going to dive right into that, but I have like a knucklehead question I want to ask you. And something sure, that I've please. always, always <laughs> like, uh, I always think about when I'm moving and I've done that a few times. So like, is there, if, if you're an architect, is there like an engineer or an equation that basically says like the door has to be this wide or like if you're a furniture designer and I know this is like, mm -hmm. like I said, this is a knucklehead question. Like, are you working on specific like geometry models to say like the couch has to be this dimension in order for someone to Tetris it in and out of the doorway? Is there like, are there, are there specific guidelines that go into that when you are trying to design a structure or is this something where like, it just so happens like through like the universal cosmos of like, um, <laughs> like it just so happens to always work out that the couch can fit through the doorway. If you turn it just a certain way, like my guess, uh, well, yeah, you got the corridor to consider too, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> Is there uh, an L bin? Is that a straight corridor? The <laughs> like, can you, can you turn the corner? Um, like, I mean, I think the two things work themselves out together, but certainly things that, I mean, even those kind of like really practical, um, moving questions are things that we definitely talk about. I mean, we're finishing, I'm finishing a dorm right now. It's going to be done in two months. Um, and yeah, a big part of it was like for a certain portion of the design process is like, how are we going to move everybody in when the students get dropped off? What types of furniture will they have with them and how are they mm -hmm. going to get it from, their parents' car like, into the building, up into their dorm room. I do think like the actual dimensions likely, and I don't know this for sure, but have kind of worked themselves out together over time. Like there's, there's minimum dimensions for doors that are required just for accessibility access. And that creates a minimum shape. And I'm guessing that most furniture is designed around those minimums knowing yeah. that everybody's going to have the same problem. Yeah. <laughs> but and we definitely look at those pathways for sure. Yeah. Okay. And it makes sense too, when you like, when you articulate it that way, cause you're like, well, the average human is six foot tall. So when someone's designing yeah. a couch, they're not going to make a couch made for like an eight foot person right. because it just wouldn't fit the person, you know? And if you're an eight foot person, yeah you play for the NBA, you get a pretty solid uh, game check and you can afford to have, you know, your couch, like, you know, 
moved in with a crane through your double French doors in your amazing multi-million dollar home. So, I mean, it's like solves exactly. that, that, that question, <laughs> that, that problem gets solved for you through just financial resources. So, yeah. okay. Enough, um, knucklehead questions from uh, the peanut gallery over here. One other thing, if you are not a free trail pro member, you are missing out. I love the free trail community and have been a member from the beginning. We all love trail culture. I would guess that you love trail races because the community around this amazing sport is second to none. Well, that's how I feel about the free trail community. With the free trail pro subscription, you can bring the trail running community you love everywhere you go. You get access to the free trail Slack community, training plans, weekly office hours that feature special guests, exclusive member only content, early access to merch drops, and so much more. From training and gear questions to getting inspiration from the epic adventures and races that members are doing, the free trail community is the place to be. Start your free trial today at freetrail.com. After that, it's only $96 a year for membership. If you are a fan of what free trail is doing for our sport, that is a small price to pay to support some of the best written, visual, and audio content in trail and ultra running. I hope to see you in the free trail slack community and when you introduce yourself mention the midpacker pod i picked out a couple topics um, that i wanted to talk through that i think could be topical for the trail and ultra running community um, mm-hmm. and i'd love to unpack some of that with you for a little bit before before we start to round out the conversation tim and i just want to say thanks for uh for again for um for carving out the time for me today this has been an course, amazing yeah. conversation and i definitely uh appreciate it um so one thing I wanted to talk through, and, and I, this is something that people discuss all the time, and it, it 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 becomes like it becomes like sometimes I feel like it becomes like a rallying cry behind um, why you should or shouldn't support certain races, and it's you know the the carbon footprint of race travel versus either working on lowering your daily footprint or like like what is you know when you're looking at the carbon footprint of traveling two races, you know, what should be the, the, the things that, mm-hmm. what should be the big things that you're really looking at or worried about? And then like, what are some practical ways that if you really want to be responsible about what that footprint looks like, that you can lower that footprint, um, on a personal level. And then what are some of the things that organizations can look to do if, if they're looking at trying yeah. to offset that? Yeah, we'll, we'll get into the organization in a second because you know, I'll, I'll talk to you about like the tiers of what I would recommend people think about there but okay as far as individuals like you know the the reality is that for most of us um as i said before if you kind of really look at your kind of personal carbon footprint which is something i really urge people to not get too bent out of shape about because it's likely not something that you would have a lot of chances in your life to change dramatically. Um, and a lot of it's outside of your control and that's not to be nihilist about it. It's just to kind of like understand where your leverage might be elsewhere. Mm, Um, that for most people likely if you're traveling by air, I mean, you know, you can, there's different ways of estimating it. I was able to like build a quick, personal calculator very, very quickly. I think you'd actually contacted me that in like the beginning of a free trail. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, basically for most people, it's going to be tiered operating your, your house, wherever you live, that's going to be your biggest footprint. Definitely. Um, for most people, unless you live say in Southern California where they have very little heating or cooling. Um, 
then it's going to probably be your day-to-day travel. And then it might be flights after that, if you travel by air often. So I'd encourage people to kind of realize that like, even if you are flying, it's not going to be, it's not going to be your top contributor and you can kind of make choices around that as you wish. I do think it's an important, if you're considering two things and like you could lower one thing because there's one you could drive to that's an hour or two away, or you're, you're flying, you know, halfway around the halfway across the continent or around the globe. Maybe you make that choice because it is going to have a dramatic effect. It is far uh, less in, less intensive on, on, on the climate to, to drive than to fly. Um, even when it's prorated across an, a full airplane of people. And so, uh, you know, I think that that's a, a sensible choice if you want to make it and have that, that kind of impact. The, the problem that I see with it is that it distracts from the potential impact, positive impact that you could have in the race itself or the organization itself. And you could say this about like literally any group activity, right, that we're congregating from, from a, a long, long ways away. I would much rather see somebody say, okay, we're going to have this collection of hundreds, sometimes thousands of people coming together. That's a way, much like I do with my clients when we're doing big projects, it's the same situation, right? Like this is why it's so applicable is that both are events that are happening that are leveraging a group initiative against an individual um, limitation, right? So like, I'd much rather see an organization say, we're going to put on this event as a carbon neutral event, and we're going to make an effort to do that because we're recognizing that we're asking these people to kind of travel from a far distance. And that has an impact, even if our event is fairly low impact. And most of the events we're talking about are because they're often in the woods. There's not a lot of like um, um, electricity being used or fossil fuels being burned or anything like that. Um, But they have this impact of travel, recognizing that they're asking someone to do that. And that for some people, this is a very big deal, very important to their lives. And they really want to, and that has to be valued and taking upon the organization to say, let's collect these people together and figure out how that we can make that a zero emissions event. Cause that then takes that onus off the individual to say, Whoa, I feel really guilty about doing this thing. Um, because I think that's like, that's a that's um something that's being applied by people that don't necessarily want to change their behaviors from the top right pushing it down on people to make individual choices that's not to devalue somebody deciding that they want to do something in a lower impact manner i mean i drive drive an ev for that exact reason but like it doesn't mean that i'm not still looking for an opportunity to have some collective action at a at a larger level and I think there's pathways to that because these are like hyper-organized events, right? Like RDs have lists of literally everything they're buying because they have to, to plan it. All of the things they're using, they have literally a list of every, um, every person that's coming to the event, where they're from. Think about like something like ultra sign up or even like UTMB's list. Like, you know, this, this is information. That's a data set. Yeah. And you could they have actually, all. They have all the data. They have all the data required to make the conscious decisions yes. to create a carbon neutral <laughs> event, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. And even if they were to kind of spread the costs of those, they even have the data now. We have the data now to know how to procure 
viable, trackable, clean offsets too. Like there's a long time where offsets were kind of considered maybe not a great pathway because you didn't know the provenance of them. Like say a lot of people say, well, we've, you know, purchased a certain amount of forests in the Amazon to offset X. And it's like, well, how do, how does anyone to know that that's like actually protected or not? Like a lot of that's verifiable now, like you would have the ability to do all of that and offset it. And I think even if you were to spread the cost of that offset across the event, you'd still create an opportunity for people that wanted to seek that out that would override that cost impact is my guess. Mm. I don't know that for sure, but I'd love somebody to take a stab at it. I would love to help someone take a stab at it. Somebody can contact me if they'd like, <laughs> because I think some, it has to exist. It's like we have a community that's like actively would actively want it. I think it's a community that's engaged with, um, let's say at least awareness at this point of, um, you know, protection of the environment. Let's call that a baseline and probably could be activated, you know, um, into supporting something like that. And then, you know, when I talked earlier about those tiers, you know, I think about it's like there's awareness, there's activism, and then there's organization. And the reason you want to get to that top one organization is because then you're taking collective action. The other two yeah. you can do on your own. You know? Yep. Yeah, no, it's a really good point. And I, I, there's something I, I want to talk about um, personal offsets, but what, you know, how, how do you feel about actual carbon sequestering out of the atmosphere? Mm. I know there's a couple companies that are basically figuring out like they're, pu they're, uh, they're pulling it out and they're storing it in the ground. Right. And it's like, you yep. can do that with planting trees. And I've been a part of, you know, I've worked with one tree planted in the past. I've worked with companies that do that, right. Where, you know, you, you help support them in their mission to plant trees and in planting trees, like you're sequestering carbon, but there are companies that, I mean, for lack of a better word, for what I'm reading, it's like, it's a subscription model. It pulls the carbon right out of the ground and you can basically set up for a personal, a, a small business, medium business, large scale. And you're basically making like a monthly donation or monthly subscription to those organizations. And then they're basically like guaranteeing that they're pulling X amount of carbon out of the atmosphere and sequestering it into mm -hmm. it, somewhere into the environment. I think they're, I don't know what they're doing with it. So you may know a little more information yeah. about it, but how do you feel about like that avenue for carbon sequestering, sequestering, excuse me. Yeah, I'm going to be brutally honest is that we probably need all of it. All of those sure. avenues. Yeah, yeah. Everything. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's like I am not opposed it. to it. I, yeah. Pour yeah, on yeah. the faucet, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm not opposed to any of it. I think that the, you know, that is kind of like a bit of a, well, I don't even know if it's this so much. This might be a bit hyperbolic, but it's a bit of a, like a moonshot, like fail safe kind of lever, um, that kind of strategy, but it's probably going to also be part of the equation. Mm. Um, I think you know, more, um, you, let's call it more normative carbon sequestration the way we know it now, like non-technological carbon sequestration is certainly easier to track because it's already happening. Right. And that's essentially taking what we would call biogenic materials, so materials that store carbon while they're alive and then sequestering them inside of things could be anything. Right. Um, you want to make sure you're stored in things that last as long as possible. That's why, again, not to bring it back to my discipline, but like buildings are great for that because they stand for a really, really, really long sure. time and don't release the carbon. Um, I think that what needs to happen is there needs to be a way to kind of uniformly verify that and, and make that an asset that can be traded because like until it's something that has, has value, like, 
and I mean specifically financial value, it's going to be hard for there to be a demonstrable market for it, even though there are now um, measurements of the cost of the social cost of carbon, like the impact of not sequestering carbon has a dollar value now. Um, but there's no market for it yet. Really? There is, there's some, but like, it's not, um, it's not uniform enough, but it's still more verifiable than say like a technological approach, um, because that's so new, but I think it's all going to be part of the tapestry of drawdown. It has to be, um, because the amount that's required is so vast and there's parts of the world where you may not have the materials to do a biogenic sequestration, right? You just might not, um, that, that resource might not be there in that spot. Um, what I think is like more suspect to me than either of those is the things like I'm going to protect a forest in X place halfway around the world, because that's not actually sequestration. That carbon's already in a tree. What you right. want to sequester is you want to like take the carbon, store it, and then replant that same location. Then you've actually reduced the carbon emissions sure. because yeah. you can follow that, I'm sure. But um, yeah. Yeah. And that's something when, when we were working with One Tree Planet, it was about aligning with projects to replant areas exactly. that have been burned down exactly. in California wildfires. So now you're like trying to recapture that carbon, you know, for it's the, the recapturing. Part. That's yeah. the key. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, cool. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I just had, I feel like that's kind of a hot button topic. And like, I mean, honestly, my biggest takeaway from that is like, if you drive an SUV that gets 20 miles of the gallon, you need to trade in your car right now for either an EV <laughs> if you can, or like I drive a Prius and I get 50 miles of the gallon and that's going to create a much larger impact on my overall daily carbon footprint than flying to like two races a year. Right. Yes. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, I would recommend that. I mean, I, yeah. I'm not going to criticize anybody's personal choice because sure. that's not the prime mover, but <laughs> yeah, but yes, I agree with you hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, I want to move on to footwear considerations and we, you sure. know, in, in, you know, free trail, I started what I think turned into one of the longest threads on, on free trail pro in, and this was in the environmentalism, uh, <laughs> Right. channel, but it was like, I was kind of like, I'm looking for the Goldilocks. I want a shoe that is, that's made out of sustainable materials that like creates that circular in the, mm -hmm. that circularity in the economy. And, you know, I had all the other criteria that I wanted cause I like, you yeah. know, yeah, small yeah, yeah. drop and I like a wide toe box and all these things. <laughs> and like, obviously like it doesn't exist, but we had a great conversation and, and you really helped lead, lead, the, lead the charge in that conversation. But like, you know, what are your thoughts on, um, sustainable material versus durability mm -hmm. and what should a runner really be thinking about when it when making a choice on, you know, a footwear choice, if they're thinking about like all runners that have, I don't know, like 50 pairs of shoes laying around in the corner where you're like, well, those will just be my walking shoes or those will just be my gardening right. shoes. I'm like, no one wants to throw away their shoes. Cause they're just like, Oh my gosh, I go through like, you know, whatever, six pair a year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, uh, yeah. what, um, what kind of thoughts do you have on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, it gets back to something we talked about earlier. It's like, it, I was thinking about the inverse of, you know, we sometimes talk about, you know, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Mm, well, yeah, you have, you have 0% of the emissions that you don't ever use. Right. So always not, not doing something is going to be the most, um, the most effective and, um, you know, positive step towards, uh, towards climate action. So like durability, I would always put higher. 
yeah, a little bit higher than, yeah. than the materials because like ultimately if you're just choosing to not incur that that debt um in either resource extraction or um just waste in general or um uh sorry there's some background noise right now oh, you're but, good um or um uh just even emissions if you're just talking about purely from an emission standpoint like that's a um i think that's a good first choice and so sometimes i like i'd love to see people take on the challenge of like could i go a whole year without purchasing even one new pair like maybe these can last longer than i think you know and i actually did that, did that this year i'm not recommending that necessarily I was like, I think I can go through all of this year without buying one, even one pair. And I'm almost made it. I'm in October. <laughs> we'll see, uh, see if I can make on, it the rest of that. How many, you're, you're running in just one pair of shoes right now? Or you have, how no, many no, pairs of shoes I'm, do you run in? I run in four, but I haven't okay. bought any this year. Okay. I yeah, any, that make, I haven't bought any. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Because I was just going to say, like, I'm, I'm going to log 2,500 miles this year. And I'm like, man, I don't know yeah, if I yeah, can yeah. put 2,500 yeah. miles on one pair of shoes. So No, no, not um, one. But, like, just to say, like, okay, I'm not going to incur that initial emissions sure. debt, right? Yep. Like, at all. And just yeah. see it as a challenge. Does it actually change much? And what I've learned is not really. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun to always yeah. get the new thing, but it doesn't actually like, you know, especially for us, like it's not going to be the thing that's going to make or break. Um, but then yeah. beyond that, I do think there are some interesting things happening like in the space of materials. Like I don't think that that's a bad thing to consider, you know, the providence of the materials that are making up those products at all. It's just about like, I think first you want to decide, you know, do I really need this thing? And then go to that second tier down about, um, you know, um, what, what is it made of? What's its impact and how do we, how do we adjust it? I, I do think though, it's also really prone for things like, you know, greenwashing. We have to be sensitive to that. Mm, like, yeah. you know, in preparation for this call, I was reading through, um, one of the company's website declarations that actually, lists their uh the carbon footprint of their footwear and this is the Allbirds website they, they actually list the emissions impact of a pair of their shoes and like it's so small like that's the thing it's like tough it's like they're they're stating okay this is like whatever 40 percent less than normal but it's still less than driving one mile in your car <laughs> like, so wow. it's like okay, okay. like is this really the thing or is this something that's kind of trying to be sold as something else? And then like digging mm. deeper, you start reading like what's the emissions impact. And I think three or four of the things that they list in that portion don't have anything to do with emissions. Right. It's about like, you know, other things that might be good, um, like using natural materials, but you know, talk about things that are kind of like myth busting. Well, there's more in emissions impact in, wool products than there are in synthetic products and that's because you have to feed an animal yeah that's because animals poop in order that's to animals poop and that yeah. too and that too right there's the other emissions yeah there's those emissions as well and um i'm not saying that that's better or worse at all like that's not my point it's just that like a lot of this is sold right like this is marketing that you got to kind of like work yourself through and make mm. sure that you're kind of doing the thing that's true to what, what you're trying to uh, actually achieve. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a man, that's like 
I don't know. It was like, I don't know. The audience will see it if they, if they watch the, if I actually ever get the YouTube going for, for the Midpacker <laughs> pod, but my head literally exploded when you're like the emission of an Allbird shoe is, is a less than driving a car one mile. I'm just like, yeah. like literally so figuring maybe, out a, yeah. yeah. Like finding a really durable shoe that you, that'll last you like 800 miles as opposed to 400 miles is probably, is probably the, the best bet there. Um, let me ask you, how do you feel about Ons circular caster bean mm. shoe thing? And I don't know if I the audience is familiar. <laughs> yeah. So Ons created this shoe and it's a subscription model. So they'll send you a new pair every yeah. two months. You send them back the shoe and supposedly they recycle the constituents of the shoe and the vast majority of the shoe is made from caster beans. Um, yeah. They also are a company that's like trying to do, um, like build polymer foams out of, um, like, carbon capture in the air too i don't know if you saw that that's not a no. product that's available that's on their website cool as a as a prototype i think but so, they don't they don't sell so, it so when so um, when they say running on clouds they really mean you're running yeah, on clouds apparently yeah. that, that's literally what's in the copy you, you wow. <laughs> you're a spokesperson today um uh the um so yeah so you know speaking to that i i think this idea that some and you see this with normal as well like companies that are claiming that they'll take the product back, disassemble it and recycle it um, is amazing. The proof to me is in the verification. Like, sure. I want to see in a few years, some of the, one of these companies come out with a report that said, this is how many people actually took advantage of this. This is how much uh, material we were able to recycle. Um, this is how much of it went back into our own product. You know, I'd love to see like a good white paper or report from them on this, from any of them. And I think, but I think it's incredibly important. Like that combined with the durability is the key, I think, for most sure. of these kind of consumer materials. Is like, this is where we get into a discussion of like away from emissions into what we would call circular economies is that yep. like, we want those circles to be as tight as possible. And the best thing is you don't, you just reuse it. You don't, uh, take it apart at all. Right. Um, so if you have a way to take that pile of, of footwear and give it to people that can use it in its first yeah. best use again, that's obviously best, but the next step is what they're doing. And I'd love to see, you know, um, reporting on that as we get enough data, enough years into that as a, as a, as a trajectory to see if that's, um, successful, like if they're actually getting, um, that getting that circular movement happening, that would be amazing to see. Yeah, totally. And I'll actually, I'll link to it in the show notes if I can dig it up. I can't for the life of me remember the name of the organization, but I got linked up with a company and they basically send you a large mailer bag and it's enough to put like whatever, 10, 20 <laughs> pairs of shoes in and you save your shoes. Yeah. And then what they try to do is they find new homes for them. Um, and they, what they, I think what they do is they figure out if the shoe has enough life in it, they find places to sell it. That's kind of how they create an economy around what they're doing. And then supposedly they're recycling the shoes that they can't sell. Um, and then they'll pay you like a dollar per shoe for whatever they can sell. And I got like my first check. It was like, whatever, three bucks. I sent like seven pairs of shoes, you know? And I thought that was kind of cool. And I think that's also coming back to what you're saying is like, you know, how do you validate what they're saying? Um, I think it's great. It, I think it's a great step. 
um, in the right directions for people to stop. I mean, for one, for runners just to stop hoarding their shoes. Cause I was one of those people. So we can like mm-hmm. kind of create a, 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 some sort of second chance or second home for, for these items. Um, but yeah, I yeah. agree with you. I like seeing the programs. I think like what Patagonia has done in sustainability for like the fabric industry is a lot, they, they it's a lot easier to repurpose that material back into yes. making clothing yeah. and then they can push this whole, like, you know, repair your clothes, repair your clothes. Like, and I'm one of those people, like I will, I will hand sew it until it, I literally can't wear it anymore. And then I send it back to, to Patagonia and I get like, you know, whatever it is, they usually give me just like a discount or they send me like a new item. Yeah. And I think it's amazing. Um, but they actually have the ability, you know, it's a lot easier to take nylon that's old and shredded and turn yes. it back into nylon than it is to take a pair of shoes with multiple different types of materials and try to deconstruct those shoes and then reuse those, reuse those materials. So yeah. And it's another place where there's this like amazing crossover and linkage with like, you know, my professional hat is like, we're starting to talk more about deconstruction and not about demolition. And that's mm. on purpose. It's like, yeah, we need to be building things so you can take them apart. We have to yeah. like, yeah. Fusing things together, fusing everything together, whether it's like through, you know, uh, thermal processes or um, adhesion is not helpful for any of that. Like we need to be able to kind of pull these things apart from each other if we have any chance of recovering them and recycling them. I have the, 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 the luck and privilege of having a wife who's a textile designer. So she repairs things for me. Very good. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, um, I think that programs that exist and i've i've taken up taken patagonia up on that as well and sent stuff in and had it repaired and i'd encourage everybody to do it it's a great service it's amazing and you get something that's at least as good as it was before sometimes you get a better zipper than you had before yeah yeah with care with character added um i will say pro tip for anyone that wants to repair their own gear make sure that you have a good nylon thread yes. don't use don't use wax cotton i mean it'll work for a pinch but the wax cotton over time because we get our we get ourselves wet and we dry and we wet or dry and that wax cotton will dry rot out whereas if Do you use, use a it. nice <laughs> nylon thread it will last forever so you know yes, pro, pro tip for anyone out there that likes to sew their own gear um okay i got two more for you and then we'll round out a couple questions and i like i said i appreciate uh your time i know um you know I know you got, that's been super fun. Yeah. I know this is the most important obligation you have today. So, um, (laughs) so what are the best practices for individuals in working toward carbon neutral in their lives? And I think we touched on some of these things and I know you mentioned, you know, Hey, like as an individual, you don't want to get too caught up in this, but like, I like making changes and I like making changes for the good and it makes me feel good. And then it also allows me to be a better advocate when I can actually feel like I'm making the right, the right changes and the right choices. So I don't know if you want to top rank a couple things, but just, uh, you know, if we were looking to make that, that change in, in our lives, where would be good places to start? Yeah. And I, I just want to quickly say, I certainly don't fault anyone for wanting to do that. Personally, I, I do it myself. Um, and I think a lot of us find ourselves wanting to, you know, whether it's going above and beyond or just making sure we've checked all our own boxes, cause that's what we care about. And that's incredibly noble. And I wouldn't dispel it, just discourage anyone from doing it. I just don't want people to feel guilty about it. Like that's the key. Cause if that freezes you in a point where you don't organize, then that's a problem. Yeah. Um, but that's not the types of people we're talking about with this question. So I'd say, um, you know, what I'd recommend for most people is something that you actually said earlier. If you're taking on something big in your life, like say, 
you're going to buy a house or you're going to buy a car or you're going to replace your furnace or replace your heating system. Try to do it in a way that's going to have the single greatest impact that you can within your means. Because like it or not, the more expensive that purchase is, likely the more um, potential emissions, potential impact and resources it's going to have. You know, it's a nature, it's, it's, it's usually commensurate with the amount of material you're buying or changing, sure. right? So like take those moments to be like, this is the biggest swing I can make, you know? And sometimes that might mean changing some habits and that's fine. Like my wife and I were early EV uh, owners before range was very good at all. And it meant that we had to change our driving habits. Um, and we learned pretty quickly that it was, despite all the talk about range, it was less about range as it was about like where chargers were and weren't. Um, sure. And so one of the things we did to try to make sure that we could make best use of it was we had put in a charger at our house and we spent that money along with the purchasing the EV to make sure that we could make the most out of that impact that we did. Cause we knew if we didn't do that, we'd end up never driving it and driving our internal combustion engine car instead. Sure. Right. Yeah. And so I th I'd say if you're approaching things that are big life changing decisions, see if you can do it in an ecological way and, or at least the most ecological way that is within your means at the time. And I think a lot of times you'll find it depends a lot on where you live. There might be incentives for that. There might be things that can offset some of that cost and burden. You know, I know that like, you brought up heat pumps earlier. That's a great option for people. Like a lot of people say, well, should I put solar on my house? I was like, you should put solar on your house if you've already put heat pumps in your house, but not mm. before. Yeah. Um, because before that you're just spending money to defer, uh, energy that you don't need to be using in the first place. Like use that money instead mm. to put in a better heating system. Guess what? You're going to be more comfortable too. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah. And, work um, on the work on the efficiency first before you think about the free power. Because yeah. once you're super efficient, then you need that much less solar on your roof too, right? So exactly, exactly. And yeah. it'll make that next decision, cascading decision, cheaper, easier to do. And um, I think that it's always about when you're faced with that crossroads, and you're like, "This is a big, scary decision." Okay, well, how can I turn it into a positive? Right? How is that mm -hmm. an opportunity and not a liability? And I'd encourage everyone to just change that mindset in that manner. Right. And that also helps defer guilt on the smaller decisions too, if that's a burden. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And honestly, like, uh, Tim, you don't know this, but I, I owned a 2012 leaf when I lived in California and I know Same. all about limited Not in range California, on, 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 a, on, on an EV vehicle. <laughs> and it, I loved having it. I will say one thing for anyone who's always on the fence with EVs, like, yeah, the cost is a little more expensive. All I ever had to do to that car was change the brakes and make sure there was brake fluid in it. Like I didn't, and, and yeah. like tires, like there's no, I mean, there's still maintenance involved, but there is very little maintenance that you have to do on those vehicles. Uh, and that, I mean, the, the range on that thing turned into like, it had a 35, 40 mile range when I finally sold it. And I would use it just to get groceries around town. Cause it's like the only yeah, thing. And I, I could dr I drive it to the trailhead locally. And like, I would use it for that because it just, it just didn't have the kind of range that could get me even to yeah. and from the office at some point, you know? So, yeah, I had a, I had, a, I had the same era <laughs> and I, Drove it all the way up into two, uh, November of 2021, uh, and it was down to probably that same amount of range at that point. Yeah. And, um, I ended up 
kidding a deer and totaling it. Oh. Um, totally. Deer jumped out of the woods, totaled the car. Deer ended up being totally fine. Car, wow. not fine. Yeah, I learned so what much. happens to an EV when you total <laughs> it, which is it completely shuts off while the car is moving. And you have to stop. And then it will not even let you back into the vehicle. It locks everything. And that's it. That's it. it the, yeah. the car is done. <laughs> and, um, but it was, uh, yeah, we, we, we got that many years out of it and, um, just got an, just got a new one two years ago and it's, uh, it's great lifestyle yeah. change and habit change, but a good, a good decision we thought. And one thing I was doing too, like you can put in the new battery packs into the older leaves and yeah. the, the change, it's not that difficult to do. I watched a YouTube video and you can definitely mess up your car if you're not careful, but there's only a couple wires you got to, <laughs> there's only a couple wires you got to contend with. And then you reset the computer and you can put 250 mile range in the, in those older EVs and the battery packs. Like if you do the work yourself, it's like a $4,000 investment. And so all of a sudden now you have a vehicle that you know, you can basically just turn it back into a, a really well usable, usable vehicle for kind of minimal investment. If you think about the fact that you didn't have to do really any maintenance to the vehicle to hold like most of the life that you had it. So anyway, um, the last thing I want to talk about is just advocacy and how we as a community of people who love the nature, lit nature and love being in nature can leverage our voice to make, to help make big changes or, you know, kind of the PAL model where they, they talk about the, what is it? The outdoor, uh, the outdoor state, you know? And I think, um, I think that's really important because I think advocacy, I think advocacy, advocacy for making a change for something you believe in is far more powerful than making an individual decision for yourself. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think we have this community that is like so good at organizing itself. And what we need to do mm. is really be talking to each other in larger, less disparate groups around these topics and in ways that are not like, they might be hard at first and they might be educational at first, which is fine. Um, but one thing that we're great about is moving as a group. Well, right. Like we do that really well Agreed. within this community. Yeah. And, um, to me that I was just having this conversation last night with, with someone about the same topic. And it's like, it makes it, a ripe community for power and action in the space. Right. And the other thing that we have is this keen awareness because we're out there, right? Like we understand the impact of our decisions really well. Um, and what we want to protect and, and stay as close to the same as possible as it is now. Um, but what that takes is recognizing that we and our actions as humans are, are part of that. And so it may mean taking more responsibility and onus of the things we do when we're not on the trail than what, when we are on the, to protect what we do when we are on the trail. So again, as a community re requesting certain things like carbon neutral races or requesting things like, um, I don't know, like, um, less fossil fuels around the way races are run or something like that. Like, it's like, these are things that we could move to request, even though they're not germane to the act of actually doing the activity. And I think that's like representative of any kind of like nascent movement is like they, there's a deep desire within people to have it be like a one-to-one -one equation. Like I do this in the hobby and it reflects that. Right. And it's like, sometimes those things aren't a perfect Venn diagram. Like you got to understand what the area of impact is and then let's move together towards it. Um, 
so that we make sure the thing that we do love doing together outside on the trails is saved. Right. Um, that could even be through doing things that raise money, raise awareness, stuff like that, but it's gotta be collective and, and moving towards a specific direction. Yeah. You have to have the buy the, the community buy-in is really important in that aspect for sure. And I think that's yeah. how you, and make I think it's there. It's sure. It's just a matter of like making sure people understand that they're moving in the same in the same space right yeah it's like coalescing the messaging it's it's a it's a true market it's it's like one of just it's a true marketing problem it's like e- very easy to solve yes. with the right with the right messaging and and the right advocacy with the right i don't want to say leadership but with the right messaging and the right advocacy it's it's a not it's a not not that difficult um you know problem to solve as far as, far as like rallying the community around what we think is important around the environment so um Absolutely. Well, Tim, I want to be really mindful of your time. Uh, I also really quickly, before I let you go, I want to talk about what you have coming up um, this year. I know, uh, are you running, you're running the Bold Coast again? I think I will. It's just such a beautiful spot. It's so far from anything. It's like the the easternmost ultra marathon in the country. And it's right on the Bay of Fundy, the opening of the Bay of Fundy. How often do you get to like literally run on coastal rock, rock outcroppings with waves crashing like next to you? It's pretty rare. Um, and uh, so I'll probably do it. It's an amazing little race that's actually a, a potluck aid, aid station. Like you have to co- have cooked something and bring it. <laughs> and uh, it's it's pretty incredible. Um, and I'll probably do it just for that. But it's again, it's like, why why do I keep up a racing training schedule? It's to be able to jump into things like that. Um, super technical wet 50K that takes way longer than a 50K should because of that. And it's just a joy. It's just fun, fun day out. So I'll probably do that. Yeah. It's in November. And then it's time to think about next Very year. Cool. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I like, I'm in that like classic. I have... I have a short race that's coming up in November that I'm going to do that I did last year called the shut in. And then it's basically, I, I'm just like waiting to put my name into these lotteries and to see what happens. Mm-hmm. And then once I figure that out, then I'll figure it out. But I honestly, I was telling, I was like, I'll tell anyone who listens right now. Like, I don't think I'm running a hundred miler next year. I think I'd, I'd rather run like <laughs> some 50 Ks and a hundred K. And I say that because like, I know what, I mean, hopefully this is just me jinxing myself and I'll get into one of these races and then it's, you know, it's on, but, um, yeah, Tim, man, thank you so much. Uh, where, if people wanted to reach out to you, obviously, um, you know, you're really active on free trail pro. Um, you're, you know, I know, I think it, it's the environmentalism, uh, channel, uh, though I think we could probably mm-hmm. find a better name for it. Uh, that being said, <laughs> um, you know, that's a great place. If, if you're, if you're a free trail yeah. pro member and, and you have questions and, and you want to know, um, you know, how you can be a better advocate for the planet and, and you just want to have like a really good conversation with people, uh, that have answers, including Tim and, and maybe myself, I'm like a neophyte, but at the same time, I, I, I think I know enough to be dangerous or get myself in trouble. And then I have people like Tim who can tell me I'm an idiot and, and, and or back or back my play. So, um, That's but right. yeah, I know they, they, people can engage with you on, on, on there on free trail pro, but, um, if they're trying to, to reach out to you and want to have a conversation with you outside of it, um, you know, give a, give us your yeah. handles and I'll give you the last word too. So. Sure. So, um, you know, I, both my company's web, uh, my company's Insta and my own Insta are, are pretty active on. So, um, more so on the company side, but, um, our Instagram is we are opal with periods in between each of the words. Um, okay. so we dot r dot opal. 
Um, and then my own handle is just timothy.lock. Um, and then I'm fairly active on LinkedIn as well. Honestly, within our space, that's probably in the professional side. If, sure. if we do have other practitioners or people in that space, I'm sure we do within our community. Like that's a very active conversation, particularly sustainability conversations on LinkedIn. So I'd encourage people to look me up there. Um, and, uh, yeah, please free trailers. Um, I will respond to almost any DM if it's about, um, things that I care about, which is, you know, ecology in general and specifically carbon emissions. I will happily answer. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you. Uh, thanks Tim for being on the pod and, uh, looking forward to, to engaging with you on Slack. So absolutely thanks Troy. all right well if you're still here thanks for sticking around to the end uh, a few things and a couple call to actions if you could uh do any of these things it would be a big help for us so first follow us on instagram at the midpacker pod and if you if you like this episode do me a favor take a screenshot of this episode from your podcast feed on your podcast player and upload it to your stories on Instagram, tag the Midpacker pod, leave a comment on the post about how amazing you think the pod is. We'll share it on our IG. It'll really help to spread the word about the podcast and grow our audience. And it'd be really appreciated. If you, if you value the content, you know, you can help us out that way. Uh, if you like the show and you haven't already, please consider giving us a rating and review on whatever platform you are listening on. It really does help uh, increase our searchability on the algorithm. It puts us in front of, uh, other people that like trail and ultra running. And so, um, you know, these are two things that you can do to, to really help spread the word about the pod. You know, if you value the content, um, I definitely value each and every one of you that listen every single week. Uh, and, and yeah, I am just super, super grateful. Um, also if you're interested in supporting any of our sponsors, you can find links and codes in the show notes. I'm super stoked to bring this content to you all every single week. And, and as always, thank you for your support. And we'll see you next time on the Midpacker Pod.